The talk tonight is about feeding our hearts, feeding our hearts with love and with wisdom. I recently heard a story about a Native American grandfather who was talking to his grandson about how he felt about recent tragedies <coughs> in the world. And he said, I feel as if I have two wolves fighting in my heart. One wolf is the vengeful, angry, violent one. The other is the loving, compassionate one. And the grandson asked him, which wolf will win the fight in your heart? And the grandfather answered, the one I feed. Oh, so that's what we're doing here. We're feeding our hearts with love and wisdom. And it's an incredibly noble thing to do. And sometimes difficult. <coughs> so the talk is about love and wisdom. There was a great teacher from India named Sri Nizargadatta Maharaj from the last century. And he said, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. Love and wisdom are both different ways to understand the truth of life. And spiritual skill in life is learning how to value both paths. So to understand between the two, my life flows, we come to realize that understanding is what purifies love. And love without understanding becomes easily attached love. And love purifies understanding. Without love, understanding can become an unhealthy detachment or indifference. So understanding the truth of interconnectedness means we understand love tells me I'm everything. We have heard that loving kindness means an unconditional friendliness towards all of life. And this is the spirit of interbeing, of non-separation it's important for us to remember that without love, babies die. That love is the fabric of incarnation. Love is the container for wisdom. The four Brahma-viharas are one context for understanding, feeding our hearts with love. So they are loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. They're the relationship of friendliness. They're a relationship of caring for suffering or pain. They're a relationship of appreciating joy, beauty, and of balance in the face of joy and sorrow. 
wisdom tells me I'm nothing. You know, this can seem like such a paradox to hold that love is telling us we're everything and then wisdom tells us we're nothing. Some of us prefer love tells me I'm everything. Some of us prefer wisdom tells me I'm nothing. In the mindfulness practice, we're developing a relationship of non-judgmental attention with all of life, with each moment. And we're meant to come to understand impermanence, mortality, the fleetingness of life. That's a Nietzsche. And because of this impermanence, there is this uncomfortability that we talked about this morning in the question and answers. You know, what does lead to our ability to not hold on to experience, to not try to manipulate or control experience? It's this understanding of change and that we can't control it, that it's unreliable. And then we can come to understand through this wisdom practice, anatta, emptiness, that we look at the body and mind or any body and mind and see that it is without substance. It is empty and uncontrollable. So being able to let go of control means that we're not defending ourselves with aversion or attachment. You know, we, we have enough mindfulness to protect ourselves so we don't need the protection, the false protection of aversion or attachment, that false protection of trying to manipulate. And out of this great understanding, we let life be. You know, this is that great wisdom we're learning. As human beings, we take birth into this range of joy and sorrow. Uh, and it, it, it takes so much just to be willing to face predator, prey, and not identify with one or the other. War or peace, birth or death, householder, monk or nun, joy, sorrow, female, male. I mean, this, this range of duality is extraordinary. That if we are willing to face this um, range of joy and sorrow, it can be shattering. And hopefully it does crack us open. And we'll be motivated to feed our hearts with love. We'll be motivated to feed our hearts with wisdom so that we respond with spiritual skill to the range of joy and sorrow rather than react with aversion and attachment and add more suffering into the world. So another way to hold this balance of love and wisdom would be to see that we are deeply motivated to connect with life as fully as we can, and yet the wisdom allows us to let go of control. 
you know, this is this amazing um, spiritual task that we faced as humans. This year, uh, my sister died, and I noticed that in the last two days of her life, um, it all got incredibly simple. And in relationship to this love and wisdom, in some ways, that's all that was left. And the day before she died, when I was talking with her, All I could say was, I love you, goodbye. It was like, again, that's all it came down to, was this impermanence and love. And when she said that back, I could still hear this attachment in her voice. And then the next day, you know, we just said it back and forth, over and over, I love you, goodbye, I love you, goodbye. And the attachment was gone in her voice, and I knew she would die. And there was a great, um, like I said, beauty and simplicity in that. And it reminded me of one of my favorite sayings by Pablo Neruda, the great Chilean poet. He said, my duty is to love and to say goodbye. And do you ever think of that as a human being? Do you think of it as your duty to be here? to love, and also to be able to, each moment, say goodbye, because the truth is that it's disappearing, disappearing, disappearing. So how do we learn to feed both the love and the wisdom, to not take sides? How do we learn to live by the truth of love, and wisdom. Some of you have heard that uh, one of Ajahn Chah's uh, great teachings was around um, his favorite cup. And he used to hold up the cup and say that he treated this cup, which was, he loved this cup, it was his favorite cup, um, but he treated it as if it was already broken. You know, so can we relate to our bodies like that, our friends like that, you know, our lives like that, or this earth like that, that we love it so much, we connect with it so deeply, and yet we understand that it's a permanent, it's already broken. So to be able to deeply care and to be non-attached, you know, this is, this is the great path. Before Brahma Viharas, you can kind of look at it as a, as a container for the wisdom, for the non-attachment. Uh, so if we look at loving-kindness, it's really understanding that allows loving-kindness to be pure. And if we look at um, karuna, compassion, it's really understanding that's, that allows the compassion to be pure in the appreciation of joy, mudita, it's the understanding that allows the appreciation to be pure. And then in the 
upeka or equanimity. It's really understanding that allows this um, unconditional acceptance to be pure. So if we look at unconditional love, which is so fundamental, which is this fabric, we can see that it's basically the giving and receiving of blessing. The experience that seems so much like love, uh, this metta love, but isn't, is attached love. And of course, we all know the opposite is anger. And then with compassion, we learn to orient this uh, basic openness of heart uh, toward the suffering in the world or the pain in the world. And we learn to care for it. The experience that can seem so much like this uh, pure care but isn't is grief and sorrow and pity. And the opposite of it is cruelty. And then with empathetic joy, we deeply appreciate pleasure, beauty, um, joy, happiness. Uh, But we see if we can open to it, orient this openness of heart without reacting to this joy with attachment, over-exuberance, addiction and the opposite of this appreciation of joy is jealousy. And then with the last Brahma Vihara, or ideal home for the heart, um, equanimity, it's this unconditional acceptance of the range of joy and sorrow in this world, that range of paradox that we take birth into, that things are just as they are. And the experience that can look so good uh, but isn't equanimity is that fake equanimity, indifference. The heart isn't connected, but we look balanced. And the opposite of equanimity is reacting to the joy and sorrow in the world with aversion and attachment. Sometimes I um, imagine that the sweetest aspiration of a pure heart, uh, if we're protected by the Brahma Viharas, if we're protected by mindfulness, that we would ask to be given all the pain in the world because we would want to care for it. And we wouldn't be afraid of being overwhelmed by the suffering. And then we would also ask to be given all the joy in the world because we would want to appreciate it, because we wouldn't be afraid of being overwhelmed by it. Can you imagine to have that daily aspiration in life, that it could, that our heart, actually our heart in its purity does have that aspiration. So when we practice the loving-kindness, 
sometimes it's so easy to forget that it's really about the transformation of our own heart. And it's not so much about the results of our wishes. We know when we experience loving kindness very deeply, we really go through any sense of duality or separation. And we won't feel like there's a giver or a receiver. It's just a pure well-wishing. And as with the uh, mindfulness practice, when we have moments of this pure well-wishing, purification will happen. Remember the beat. The beat. The beat is purity, purification. Well, if we have those moments of purity of metta, which we'll have whether we're doing mindfulness practice or loving-kindness practice, uh, we will face conditional love. We'll face wanting love. We'll, wa- we'll face wanting approval or neediness or lust. And we'll also have the opportunity to face the opposite, anger and fear. You know, so we can see how much the practice um, of love and wisdom both happen whether we're doing mindfulness practice or metta practice. Because if we are doing some of the loving-kindness practice, we'll have to do the wisdom practice to bring understanding to the anger, to bring understanding to the neediness, or the erotic love, or whatever, the romantic love. So we learn how to work skillfully um, with what comes up in the purification I wanted to read a quotation from D.H. Lawrence, which um, probably some of us here have felt about love. It's more the the cynical um, way that we can relate to love, or, you know, the fear of our own unlovableness, or maybe how sure we are of our unworthiness. He said, you can just imagine what might have happened in his life before this. I, here and now, finally and forever, give up knowing anything about love or wanting to know. I believe it doesn't exist, save as a word or sort of a wailing phoenix that is really the wind in the trees. Have you ever felt like that about love? that we don't even think it exists. It's just too painful to consider. The Buddha did call these experiences the ideal home because we're in the human realm, you know, and they take um, effort and cultivation to really drop into the purity of love versus um, the difficult aspects of love. I particularly appreciate that the Buddha described um, the experience of loving-kindness just as a mother cow would feel upon seeing her newborn calf, or you can think of a parent seeing a newborn, or any of us actually experiencing a newborn, um, we see that there's so much labor 
that goes into giving birth. And if you think of a cow, particularly, you know, just the size of this baby cow coming out of this uh, mother, you know, just that pain of labor, of taking birth, and we realize the preciousness, you know, what we've been given, the preciousness of birth, the preciousness of life. And then that moment, that just that moment of making that connection visually with this newborn. And what would you experience? It would be like you would just totally wish this being well. Or any of us when we see a newborn. We, we know, <laughs> we all know better than anyone, that this being, you can't totally protect a newborn from the joys and sorrows of life. Yeah? I mean, you know that it's not going to be all a bed of roses, but not all thorns. Uh, but the, the wishing well is metta. It has nothing to do with attachment to result. It has nothing to do with controlling that being's life. And in some ways, uh, to use the example of the animal world for this experience shows how universal it is for all of us beings to know what loving-kindness is. It's instinctual. It's deep in us. Uh, It's there. It's not like we make the truth of interconnectedness happen when we do metta. It's more that we realize it through that practice. Or when we're just going along doing mindfulness practice, we'll drop into the loving-kindness as well. So in a way, when we, when we touch into loving-kindness, we do face mortality. We face impermanence. We face that aching beauty of the preciousness of life. We understand the fleetingness of existence. Uh, but the way that we get touched is often from that sense of really appreciating incarnation and this opportunity that life gives us for feeding our heart with love and wisdom. The great Zen master Suzuki Roshi said, life is like getting into a boat that's just about to sail out to sea and sink. (laughs) That's an amazing thing to say, and that's the truth. And so how do we look at a newborn and wish them well? How do we look at the person sitting next to us and realize, yes, all of us in this room, you know, there's this, we're all going to die. There's this impermanence. Um, Hopefully, we get a sense of what metta really is by bringing that understanding into the love. There's so many aspects to loving-kindness. You know, one of the great aspects to loving-kindness is patience. And I think that it can take a while for us to really accept our humanness 
that yes, when we look at a newborn, we realize that we aren't born perfect. You know, there's a lot of karma coming in with all of us. And I found in the mindfulness practice, which is again about developing understanding, uh, that I started to slowly accept (laughs) my humanness, you know, that I accepted that I had to learn to work with the aversion and attachment. The more I accept it in myself, the more I can accept it in the world. There's a great image of each moment of life being like a moment when the um, tide, one wave comes in onto the shore, breaks and washes away, and you have that feeling of an empty beach. And each moment is like that. If you notice just the rising and falling movement of the breath, you know that that, that is a completion, it's a birth, It's a life, it's a death, each breath. And each wave on the the shore is like that. And so life really is like an empty beach. And do we have the patience to just wait, you know, for that gift from the sea, that great expression? You know, so much of the mindfulness practice and the loving-kindness practice and life is like that. We develop this extraordinary patience. Breaking the barrier between ourselves and ourselves, between ourselves and a dear friend, benefactor, neutral, difficult, um, and on and on, is a lot of the practice of the Brahma Viharas. And it requires understanding. And say we consider working with a difficult person. At times, we're the difficult person. At times, a dear friend is a difficult person. And then there's the real difficult persons who never leave the category. They never move. They just seem to stay a difficult person. (laughs) We have a a neighbor um, near the land in Hawaii. Steve and I have been um, working with developing a center at. And this man grew up in uh, North Kohala on the Big Island, and he's very quiet. Uh, If there's a group of people around, he will usually not say anything. But if it's one-on-one, he'll usually speak a bit. And if we ever start talking about a difficult person, he'll stay quiet for a while. And you'll like kind of hear people's judgments or opinions about the person or, you know, maybe this aversion, anger. And then at just the right time, he'll say very quietly, I wonder why he does that. Or I wonder why she does that. And it's so interesting because he absolutely doesn't expect an answer. You know, the question isn't a question. It's just just meant to stop the mind. You know, stop the judgment, stop the opinion, and to feel connected, to understand. It's so beautiful. It's just, I wonder why they do that. (laughs) 
you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's a good idea. Breaking the barrier. Karuna, compassion. We take the openness that we learn, the openness of heart and the loving-kindness practice, the metta, and shift it toward pain or sorrow or suffering. And as we (coughs) learn in the loving-kindness practice, um, we're learning to look at the most beautiful angle of a person. It's like if you took a flower and just held it in your hand and kind of turned it around and and found the most beautiful angle of the flower. In the loving-kindness practice, that's what you're doing. You're finding um, the place of connection with the goodness of this being, the positive qualities. You'll hear us say something like that. See if you can notice just one quality about that person that touches your heart. And sometimes it takes effort, yeah? And maybe we'll think, oh, that person has, they told a joke <laughs> once. You know, we'll connect with something about that person. Or maybe we saw that they were generous or something. And we'll feel that way in which we feel connected. That's how uh, the, the Buddha taught the proximate cause for the arising of loving kindness is that connection with that um, heart quality. With the karuna, the proximate cause of the compassion is actually tuning into the helplessness of the suffering. And I think that's really interesting. We often forget that little detail. (laughs) You know, that uh, compassion requires the willingness to face pain. Uh, And what's so difficult in the compassion is that we tend to either hold our nose, dive in, and think that we have to go so deeply into the pain that we drown in in it, and then we're not effective. Or we're afraid of the pain and we step so far back that we don't really connect with it. And when I first did the compassion practice, I would find that I kept stepping too closely in and drowning and stepping too far back and not connecting. And it took a while for me to just find that place of being able to touch the pain with care. And it would be similar to if I, you know, if I had a big sore on my hand right now. It's like compassion wouldn't bring, be bringing your attention deep into the core of that difficult pain. And it also wouldn't be, you know, going to Boston and sort of looking at binoculars through binoculars and seeing if you could see it, yeah? Both are a little extreme. But just being able to touch the pain with a caring energy, you're close, yeah? But you're not drowning, you're not too distant. And this is the practice of compassion, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, whether we see somebody's actions are going to create harm for this person or ourselves in the future, we can also feel compassion uh, for unwholesome actions people uh, or ourselves um, do. 
So it's just that willingness to care for pain. It was a great revelation for me, you know, that that was a pleasant feeling when I first discovered it. I felt like I'd been given all the gold in the world. And because I didn't learn this practice till pretty far along in my spiritual practice, I was really upset when I first learned it, when I got it. Because I thought, you know, why didn't I learn this in kindergarten? You know, <laughs> like, who left it out? You know, who leaves this out? You know, what? <laughs> it's, it's still astounding to me when you think that, you know, we take birth in the human world and there's this considerable amount of pain. You know, you might say there's some pain in the world. You know, and then why, why is it so obscure? Why is it so hard for us to really know what it is? What We know grief so well. We know cruelty so well. We know pity so well. But what is this pleasant feeling of care? So whenever we can can really touch into our own helplessness in the face of our own suffering on the retreat. Say we're in dukkha land, and we sense that, you know, experience really is out of control, and we feel that helplessness. You know, this is good practice. But do we attack our helplessness? Do we hate our helplessness? Do we become indifferent to it? Or can we really connect with it with care and mindfulness? You know, this is what leads to compassion. So it's a wonderful feeling when we connect with compassion, with pain in the world. The first year that I went to um, Burma to teach, up in um, the Sagain Hills, there was a young man who had done one young adult retreat who was, um, had been living in New York City for many years. Uh, so he came to Burma right out of New York City, you know, came right up to this over 650-year-old monastery. So one could say there was quite a contrast between his life, you know, a young adult's life in New York City to this monastery in Burma. And in the early morning and at dusk, uh, some mosquitoes come out. And it's really not that intense, but they do come out. Um, And during the interviews, he would talk about how much he hated the mosquitoes, you know, and then even when he would hear the sound of a mosquito, he would be so angry and upset. And, you know, we had this precept of not killing, you know. And so this was really difficult for him, um, working with this precept. Uh, And toward the end of the retreat, you know, he was feeling like nothing was happening in his practice and no insight was happening. And he came into an interview right at the end of the retreat and he looked really different. And he said, a mosquito came again and I was hating the mosquito and suddenly... It was just about to suck blood again <laughs> out of my arm. And he said he felt compassion for the mosquito. You know, he didn't feel separate. 
You know, and it was such an incredible experience for him to feel that connected to this mosquito that he felt compassion and just willingly let it have some of his blood. You know, this was incredible transformation for him. He felt, he felt the helplessness of this mosquito and realized it was the same as his, uh, his helplessness in the face of the suffering in the world. Sometimes it's hard to do that with a person sitting next to us, never mind a mosquito. Uh, The great Native American uh, chief, Chief Seattle said, If all the beasts were gone, man would die from loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the beast happens to the man. All things are connected. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons of the earth. Remember, it's a pleasant feeling to care about pain. Empathetic joy, mudita. I remember when I shifted the first time from doing compassion practice to mudita practice, you know, it started to have this kind of fun sing-song, the phrase, you know, may your happiness and success never end. Oh, you know, it was just such a uplifting um, experience. Um, but then if you do it for a while, you realize that <coughs> the near and far enemies of mudita are actually quite difficult. You know, you, you start realizing that um, the comparing mind <laughs> comes up uh, big time. Sometimes I think that culturally, being mindful of jealousy is very hard. It's like we don't really want to face that comparison or jealousy. And then there's the way that we hold on to pleasure, the over-exuberance, the, um, the way that we uh, get so easily addicted to pleasure. And I think there's so much beauty in this world. It's like there's so much joy Um, But in some ways, that gets left out of the curriculum. You know, that gets left out of the emphasis. And we forget that if we close down to the pain in the world, we actually close down to the joy in the world. And if, if you think of the metaphor of like a flower opening or closing, when our hearts close down, they close down to joy and sorrow. And when they start to open, we don't just get to open to the joy, we open to the sorrow. It's, it's just the way life is, that's how it works. So remember that when you open, you're also opening to joy, as well as sorrow. Uh, <coughs> I found that it was easier for me to say, I appreciate the joy in your life, than may your happiness 
or, and success never end, but people find different ways of relating to those phrases. Whatever helps, helps one realize that we're just, um, instead of c- caring about suffering, we're really caring about joy, appreciating blessing. We remember that phrase, what goes up must come down. And we, I think sometimes we get afraid of opening to joy because we've experienced that sense of being kind of crushed when we're so happy or joyful or exuberant. You know, so we get a little gun-shy. One of the great things that I appreciab- appreciate about retreats, but also about... Um, people that I share retreats with are how we learn to appreciate just basic things. You know, so just if we ever get popcorn, you know, just, it's so wonderful to share popcorn with people. You know, it's so simple. And yet, if we're really busy and we're not paying attention, we miss that. Or maybe it's not popcorn for you. Maybe it's those little chocolate bars <laughs> that somebody <laughs> gives us. But it's just these little touches in life that make life worth living, that, that touch us. It might not be a chocolate bar. It might be a smile in our life that someone gives us. But certainly, I think we can, on retreat, start to get what empathetic joy is. And it's really about appreciating simple joys, you know, so that if we really hear the coyotes, or if we really hear an owl, if we really see a chipmunk, you know, that, that's like how you start realizing if you really notice the movement of the breath or feel the warmth of the wind on your cheek, we start to get that when we close down to pain, we close down to joy, and any kind of um, light pleasure or simple beauty is something to really appreciate, not to reject. But how do we find that balance of not rejecting it, but not losing ourselves in it, not um, getting so easily attached and losing the plot? You know, I'll have that sense of, oh, it's October, whatever it is, 22nd, and it's still warm, you know, and I'll want that warmth to last forever. You know, it just shifts from that ah to grabbing on and wanting it to last forever. So I find that, um, especially on retreat, that I get that sense of gratitude that I can just be in my body and take a step and not be so busy just to walk, just to sit, just to eat, you know, just to look at the sky. You know, these are all really joyful things if we're paying attention. And they lead us to gratitude An aspect of empathetic joy is gratitude. In some ways, gratitude is the deepest spiritual emotion. And there's a goodness and sweetness and purity that's a part of life, that it's seething into us um, every moment. 
Uh, and it's an aspect of life that's so important to appreciate, receive. This is a very simple um, poem by Basho, uh, but it just shows how simple it is to hear the sound of a bird. Your song caresses the depths of loneliness, high mountain bird. Interconnectedness. You know, we really need that understanding. It's what holds us. It is the fabric of the universe. Earlier this spring, um, there was a, a young man who had been off doing a long retreat in Asia that I know well. And he came back um, through Hawaii. And he was just going through a really difficult time. You know, he came back out of the retreat just filled with despair and doubt and self-judgment. And it was so bad, you know, that um, I had to wait a long time. And then finally one day I realized I could finally say to him something Wavy Gravy said. If you lose your sense of humor, it's not funny anymore. You know, humor is really an aspect of mudita, or empathetic joy. You know, I'm going to fit it in all the lists eventually. You know, how can we live without it? You know, and you know when it's not funny (laughs) anymore, (laughs) you know, that you've lost your connection. Um, But it wouldn't have been appropriate for me to say that until he was in a um, reasonable (laughs) state. You know, you don't want to hear that sort of thing if you're really in the dumps. (coughs) (laughs) So try it sometime. If, If I lose my sense of humor, it's not funny anymore. The last Brahma Vihara is um, unconditional acceptance, equanimity. Things are just as they are. You know, and this, it, this, this particular Brahma Vihara requires the most understanding. It's like if you call up yourself or you call up another, you're meant to just tune into any human being's range of joy and sorrow in this world. I mean, that, that range is amazing. If we just consider everyone in this room, you know, if you could hear just one of our minds over a loudspeaker for an hour, you know, it, you'd just get a little taste <laughs> of the range of joy and sorrow. And you just, just imagine what we sound like if you could hear us all, and then you kind of expand that to everyone on the planet, and then all the beings, it's pretty loud. (laughs) So there's this range of joy and sorrow, and can we connect our heart with this joy and sorrow? 
but not react to this range of joy and sorrow with aversion and attachment. And really that's about reacting to change. So the the experience that seems so much like this is this indifference. And it's not to judge the near and far enemies. It's like if you feel your heart close up, if you feel like you're protecting yourself by closing down, that's okay. One time I wanted to do a workshop called Closing the Heart. I thought it would be kind of fun, just as a change. (laughs) 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 And then there's reacting with anger and attachment, fear. You know, and, and again, we hopefully we learn in this practice that if we hate the reaction, we're just adding more reaction. All it is is an attempt at manipulation. It's attempting to control life rather than letting it be. Uh, So the experience of saying things are as they are, things are as they are. You know, this is meant to balance these three Brahma-viharas. You know, it brings the balance into the friendliness, the caring about the suffering, the appreciation of joy. And then it's that ultimate unconditional peace or nonviolence. There's a um, woman who lived across the street from me um, most of my life as I was growing up. And she wrote me an email recently that said, I was in a frenzy like every day, trying to keep everything from being how it is. You know, that's a great way to see our daily life. So much of it is being in a frenzy, trying to keep things from being how they are. You know, we get to see that so closely on a retreat. Our little ways of trying to fix our practice, you know, to do things to make it better. And it's not that we're not meant to do little things to intervene, to maybe uh, shift low energy sometimes. We might stand. We might do touch points. But if we're motivated out of aversion, we're just reinforcing aversion. So that ability to make a slight intervention but not to be attached to the result is metta. It's patience or to just let things be and let the energy right itself, because it will. I did a self-retreat on the Big Island um, at our neighbors there for two weeks, and I think I mentioned it earlier, that was the retreat where there were five dogs, peacocks, and uh, the 44 guinea hens. And I'd never done a retreat with five dogs. Three of the dogs were sick, so I had to take care of them. And I must say, this was quite an unusual retreat. Um, You know, just getting the dogs fed, you know, reminded me of raising (laughs) three children. It was just such a big deal because, you know, each dog wanted to eat the other dog's food. And so I, wa- you know, the woman who um, I was house sitting for didn't get give me the transmission. She didn't show me how she did it. So the first couple days were just chaos when I tried to even feed them the food. Never mind that the peacocks would try to eat the food, and then the guinea hens and um, 
I really lost it. <laughs> I was trying to, trying to feed these dogs. Uh, and then even just to go out for a walk, uh, the, the former owner of these dogs uh, trained them to chase the cows. And then the cows would sort of come after me when they chased the cows. Um, <laughs> it was quite interesting. And I started to see that um, the dogs were so transparent. It's like I could see the near and far enemies of um, loving kindness and compassion and mudita and equanimity in them. So sometimes they were so kind to each other. And the next moment they'd be kind and then they'd just attack each other and then they'd be jealous, uh, just so transparent. And after, at first, like, I, w- I kept trying to find the good dog, you know, like, there must be a good dog here. And then <laughs> it was like I wanted to stereotype w- them so I'd feel, sec- you know, secure in how to relate to them. I didn't know these dogs. And then I'd try to find the bad dog so that then I'd know who was barking all night. You know, and all my attempts at controlling over a few days and then a week, I started to see that there was no really good dog or no really bad dog. You know, they just all had their personalities. Uh, and I started to train, train them with mindfulness. You know, we started um, a mindfulness retreat. They were on the retreat with me. And it was great. Um, and I got to this place where I found this unconditional acceptance of their personalities, you know, that that's just how they were. But I also watched how, you know, like when they would go to chase the cows, I'd be like, no, 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 no. And after a while, because they really started to like me, they'd start, they wouldn't chase them. And then when I would go and I'd sit outside, and instead of jumping all over me and licking me and, you know, they started to just let me be. So by the end of the retreat, I could sit outside and they'd just do their thing, and once in a while they'd come up. But it was really interesting to watch how, yes, they were willing to change, they were willing to learn to be mindful, and I was able to accept them the way they were. Mm-hmm. We're similar. So equanimity, accepting the joy and sorrow in the world, doesn't mean that we're condoning the suffering in the world. You know, and this is very important for us. It doesn't mean we're condoning the pain in the body, in the mind, in the heart. It means that we see that this is how life is. That there's this range of joy and sorrow. That it doesn't mean passivity. I think the biggest misinterpretation of equanimity is passivity. It doesn't mean denial. Compassion doesn't mean not taking action to alleviate suffering. In fact, you're here. All of us are here because we've taken action to alleviate suffering. And we've taken action to alleviate suffering here so that we can bring that into the world. So we learn to use the precious gift of life, the precious incarnation that we receive wisely, 
and we learn to feed our hearts with um, love and wisdom. So I'd like to end with a song of the Earth Spirit. It's a Navajo. It's another way to um, see our practice a different angle. It is lovely indeed. It is lovely indeed. I, I am the spirit within the earth. The feet of the earth are my feet. The legs of the earth are my legs. The bodily strength of the earth is my bodily strength. The thoughts of the earth are my thoughts. The voice of the earth is my voice. The feather of the earth is my feather. All that belongs to the earth belongs to me. All that surrounds the earth surrounds me. I, I am the sacred words of the earth. It is lovely, indeed. It is lovely, indeed. Sit for a minute. May we continue to feed our hearts, to make the choice to feed our hearts with love and wisdom. <laughs>